In Underground History, Chelsea Rose of the Southern Oregon University of Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA, brings in people and stories about our intricate and fascinating history. Today, we'll look at Oregon's history of food innovation, starting with the tater tot, America's perfect pocket-sized potato pillow, if I may say so. But there's much more. Who knew Oregon was such a hot place for tasty food innovation? Chelsea speaks with food historian Heather Arndt Anderson about Oregon's potato connection and clever food inventions. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and Southern Oregon University's Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Heather Arndt Anderson, award-winning author, food historian, and producer of the Oregon Public Broadcasting's newsletter, Super Abundant. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Chelsea. Yeah, so glad that you were willing to come have this conversation with me. So (laughs) (laughs) to start off, I had to track you down after reading your recent write-up about the invention of tater tots in Oregon. I thought that was so interesting. It never even occurred to me that those were invented because that suggests there was a time before tater tots, which is hard to imagine. (laughs) So how did you stumble upon this uh, fried foodie fun fact? Uh, well, I've been studying food and foodways and the history of cooking in the state for a while now, but um, it was like National Tater Tot Day. You know how <laughs> there are all of these like silly little fake holidays, um, and I usually blow them all off, but this one was like, well, this has an Oregon tie to it, so I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And um, yeah, I mean, we have been growing potatoes in the state in eastern Oregon and on the border of uh, Idaho for such a long time, but it didn't even occur to me that, um, well... The sadness of living in the tater totless world, pre tater tot invention. <laughs> I know. What did people do? <laughs> the dark days. <laughs> I guess they just mashed potatoes into <laughs> odd shapes. Um, so yeah, I wanted to do a little bit of digging and kind of uncover the story of not just you know how they came to be, but but why? Why did people need this product in their lives? And it was more just a matter of. Um, the need there was not that people wanted tater tots. It was that they, uh, the company Orida was producing a lot of waste, and they didn't want to just feed it all to the cows like they were doing with the corn husks for their frozen corn business. Um, so, yeah, ingenuity and um, really and keeping an eye on the bottom line um, has always created these new creative breakthroughs. And do you think that right off the bat they were like, oh, we are on to something? Or did it like take a little bit of time for people to get used to it? I mean, is there any any accounts in part of that history about how much they had to kind of sell people on it? Um, I think that it's interesting that the, the hash brown patty was actually invented by Orida before the tater tot. The year before the tater tot was released, they were already kind of in the business of making these molded products. And, you know, home freezers were pretty new. I mean, the um, the average American household didn't have a refrigerator with a freezer in it until, you know, the 1940s. And so this was kind of new technology. And the idea that you could just load your freezer with these, like, convenience products was still a pretty – that did need to be sold to American consumers. But um, it was – just such an easy product. It kind of sold itself. People were already into French fries. Frozen French fries were a really easy sell. And um, these little yeah, tater tots, just they kind of kept releasing new flavors and advertising them. And um, the other flavors didn't really take off 
I would I would personally love to have uh, like onion and chives or ch- cheese tots, um, but the regular old original flavor has always been the one that sold best. So yeah, it's interesting to think of um, how markets are tested for something like a product that we consider so ubiquitous now. But yeah, there was a time when they really were like, we got to get these out the door. And also, you know, the market also changed because originally for a long time, you think of tater tots with for kids, but now they got real grown up and you can throw some Cajun seasoning on them, put them in a mason jar. And now they're like at every brewery or hipster pub. And, you know, did that do we have Napoleon Dynamite to thank for that renaissance or was that kind of already (laughs) happening? Like what made people be like, let's bring back those flavored tater tots? (laughs) No, you know, again, it's pub grub is always about what's the easiest and the cheapest to sling to people who are drinking. And people who are drinking want starchy, greasy food. And since we, you know, had, again, the ubiquity of frozen potato products here that could just be chucked into a fryer. Um, yeah, there's always going to be some some stoner or some drunk <laughs> yeah. guy who's like, let's put some nacho cheese and sour cream on top of this. And, you know, and maybe it was just a laugh at first, but it, you know, took off kind of like how um, we think of donuts as, as, well, especially voodoo donuts here. What can't you put on a donut is, you know, the, yeah. what can't you put on a tater tot. <laughs> and I know that I heard recently that in Bend, there's a food truck that has like giant tater tots that are like loaded with stuff too. So I guess people can continue to reinvent the shapes and, and all the ways to use them. But so you mentioned French fries were kind of one of the main thing of that place, but French fries weren't invented in Oregon. I did just hear recently on the way to record this that the JoJo is an Oregonian invention. It is. <laughs> uh, yeah, the JoJo was invented here. Although I think that steak fries and home fries are a pretty national concept. Um, the other thing that I just learned actually when I was doing a little backup reading today was that the waffle fry was also invented here by a different competitor of Orida, the company Lamb Weston, um, who I'm reading has a singular goal of global domination in the <laughs> frozen potato <laughs> product industry. Um, but yeah, so they, right around the same time that Orida was setting up shop, um, Lamb Weston was also in Eastern Oregon for some board, well, in Western Oregon. Um, and in Boardman, and they pioneered some of their own technology. They had the, um, like, hydraulic-powered um, potato blaster that would shoot <laughs> them through the mesh uh, blades to cut, you know, French fries super fast. Um, and then they invented the, the waffle fry. Um, they were an early producer of curly fries. It's, um, it's just so fun. I never think of Oregon as this, like, hotbed of French fry innovation, but we kind of have been for uh, decades. Yeah, that is amazing. The fry blaster. I can't even believe that's a thing. I, I want to look that up now. <laughs> oh, it's the, it's the standard now, the industry standard. Like, the way that French fries are mass-produced is there. yeah, they use water power, basically, and then they, get, they blast the potatoes through these little blades. That is amazing. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of the history of our region of beyond. And you can find us online on jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with Heather Arndt Anderson about America's favorite pocket-sized potato products and more. So you mentioned the you know, that a lot of, well, the tater tot comes from near Idaho. And, you know, people always think about Idaho as like the potato state, but Oregon actually um, 
seems to have a long history with spuds, you know, also in, I think, like the Klamath Basin and stuff, there's a lot of potatoes there. So is there something just like distinct about the climate? It's high elevation, it's dry, or is it more to it than that? Well, uh, I think that you really hit on the head when you say the the elevation and the climate. But um, it just when you mentioned the Klamath Basin, it reminded me of this Japanese soap opera series that was on, I think, in the 1980s called, like, Love Potato, and it took place in Klamath Falls on a potato farm. No. Um, so you can look that up when I, I went to Japan once, and um, when we told people we were from Oregon, they were like, oh, like, clam- like Love Potato. And um, so it's funny how we have this kind of international reputation yes, for being for a potato potatoes. farming area. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, you know, Eastern Oregon also and on the Washington or uh, the Idaho border grows a lot of sugar beets, too. And so I think that there's just this um, the type of soil. It seems a little bit rockier. It's more volcanic. I think that those are just the easiest crops to grow out there. They don't require a lot of water. Um if you think about where the potato originated in Peru, you know, their soils are the same. They're very, like, volcanic-driven, very rocky, thin soils. And, um, yeah, so it seems like we have enough similarities um, just in our geomorphology that it makes it an acceptable crop. I don't know that it seems like more decisions about what to grow are informed by the capabilities of a region rather than a desire for a specific product. And so, yeah, um, yeah it's just... And I think I well remember, uh, like with seed potatoes, I think they have to hit, they have to frost a certain way or something in order for them to grow, right? I think I remember that from trying to replant potatoes that sprouted in my pantry. I think that there's like a special area that makes good seed potatoes. So maybe that's part of that same like high elevation, but rocky soil. But Mm -hmm. on that note, um, so as an archaeologist, I spent a lot of time in the dirt and thinking about dirt, but you have a background in soil science. Is that right? So that's, uh, you know, you also think about dirt and that informs the way you think about food. Is that right? Um, close. I, my background <laughs> is actually in botany, um, but I was a wetland scientist and worked as a plant ecologist and wetland scientist for about 10 years. And so wetland science is equal parts soil, uh, botany, and hydrology. And so even if you are just a plant person, you end up spending a lot of time in soil. I did have to take advanced soils courses, um, not just in school, but then you know throughout my career. And so I... As a person who loves plants, of course, I have to have an understanding of soil because it's where plants grow, you know, for the most part. That's right. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, but oh, so and also when I was doing a lot of the field work, when I was still a field scientist, I would work very closely with archaeologists. Um, we always had a cultural resources team with us to check for any signs of um, prior occupation and um, make sure that we aren't disturbing anything to... Um, significant. Um, so I think that there's a lot of connection between what you study and, you know, what scientists out in the field are looking at for, you know, botany reasons. Well, and I also think even what you're doing now, because I love learning about the ways these foods were experienced, because as archaeologists, we have to kind of do a lot of guesswork when it comes to how things made to the, their way to the table. We see ingredients, we see hearth rings or fire rings or something like that where that can kind of help us give clues to how people were cooking um tools that were used for hunting can kind of estimate what kind of game we got bottles and cans more recently and 
so, you know, but we don't really know what what that looks like as a dish and like barring mm-hmm. a Pompeii-like situation, we're not going to see a tater tot or, or something like that in the archaeological mm-hmm. record. So I think it's really, it's important too that historians and folks are also researching like, what are people doing with this? Because it represents a very human trait to be creative and minimize waste. And, you know, that's, that's something that's always been happening. For sure. And, you know, <clears throat> I found it interesting that when I do any kind of anthropologic research on, a, you know, a region that I'm studying, it's always the accounts of the botanists that were visiting areas that give us more insight into what women were cooking because, you know, the, a lot of the anthropologists were more interested in what kind of weapons and tools people were leaving behind, but the botanists were paying attention to what women were doing because women were the ones gathering all the plants. And so um, some of the most in-depth notes you'll find um, about how women were cooking, are, it's not from the anthropological lens, it's from the botanical lens. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, and we we do work sometime with um, macro botanical remains and stuff like that, too. And there is, you know, you go to the ethnographic record to kind of infer, you know, would this be a wild thing that just isn't intrusive or is it something that people were using for food or medicine? So that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and that kind of leads me to my next question, like the foodie history of Oregon and the larger Pacific Northwest goes way back and tribes are actively working to kind of regain access to resource areas and recenter these traditional foods that their communities have been enjoying and sustained by for centuries. And have you met, mm-hmm. spent much time researching first foods and how they might have influenced our modern agriculture or tastes, cuisines, that kind of thing in Oregon? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I... um I've noticed that, you know, unlike other major cities, well, Portland's not that major a city, but we don't have our own version of Chicago deep dish pizza or Maryland crab cakes. We um, we have so many foods that we're sort of known for, uh, like beer and whatever. Um, but the closest thing that we have to our significant regional foods or our signature foods are deeply informed by the first foods. So, you know, things like berries, huckleberries and caneberries, hazelnuts, salmon, um, those are all foods that are still very much part of the diet of indigenous Pacific Northwesterners. And um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting to approach food today or the way we see Oregon as a, a food-producing state or as a superabundant state. Um, is it really is directly tied to the first foods. We, we talked before with Wenex Red Elk of the Umatilla tribe on the show about the efforts to restore the food systems and things that were disrupted through settler colonialism. And it seems, uh, you know, that a lot of these these efforts are getting more widely publicized. Like lately, there's been a lot of information in the news about wild celery. And I think you even talked about that on your newsletter as well. Yeah, those uh, plants in the Columbia Plateau have cultural significance, um, not just as a, a food, but the practice of gathering them is an important tradition that is passed from generation to generation. And so even if, you know, they can't gather a lot of that wild celery, just the act of going out, the women collecting together and teaching their daughters how to identify the plant, where to find it, when to find it, those are such important cultural practices. And there's climate data in there, too, because I, re- I was reading somewhere that, um, you know, there used to be, it's not always that you find it in the frost or with the snow, and that impacts the flavor, and that's changed over time. So it's interesting, too, like all the different layers of data that are in those traditions. For sure. Yeah, you know, when you mentioned before potatoes and um, f- frost and and how um, 
starches in root vegetables are altered by temperature. And so you're not supposed to keep potatoes in the refrigerator because it actually makes them, turns their carbohydrates more into sugar, makes them taste sweet. But yeah, I, I'm really interested in seeing how not just um, how climate will impact the productivity of plants, but the flavors of them or the nutrition, um, the nutritional content of these, these vegetables and plants. Oh, that's a good point. So I want to get back to fried food a little bit. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> I've heard I've heard that Marfar chicken originated in Southern Oregon at a beloved Chinese restaurant named Kim's that was in Medford, and it's closed now, unfortunately. But I also mm-hmm. just learned that corn dogs were invented on the Oregon coast. So we've got these in addition to JoJo's and tater tots, and I mean these mm-hmm. early Oregon chefs were on fire, especially with the fried food. <laughs> so yeah, pronto pup. Yeah, that's right. So you know, it seemed like the that necessity was the mother of invention with the pronto pup again because instead of like having to deal with buns and um you know they go stale they take up space you just encase the hot dog itself in its own like carrier i guess i don't know what you call the yeah. shell and then add a stick so i mean do you know much about that local food and that's reached national fame as well um yeah there's all this well i i wouldn't say that the history is apocryphal i know that my colleague um Megan did a story on the Pronto Pup, uh, I think it was like last summer. Um, but yeah, they were supposedly invented on the Oregon coast. Um, we had, right around that time, there were so many different like fair foods kind of coming out. And we had some history with other, like the the type of ice cream cone that uh, we still use as cake cones. Those were invented here. Um, oh my yeah, yeah, I don't know why we have so many of these like snacky little food inventions. But there was, um, right around the time that Pronto the Pup was launching on the Oregon coast, um, there were these franchises called Lollipop, which was another, like, corn dog um, company that wanted to kind of capitalize on the, the new fame of the Pronto Pup. And so there were some um, franchise offices here in Portland, Oregon, um, where you could go to the office and set up your own Lollipop franchise. And some of it was just such blatant ripoff of Pronto Pup. <laughs> Um, but it's funny just to see, like, oh, man, that's a good idea. Let's let's try to get our own version of that. And just the way that I don't know if it's a uniquely Oregon thing, but it really just seems like more than a coincidence that we are yeah. the source of so many, <laughs> like, snacky staples. It's true. And one of the things that I never thought that the corn dog would be invented here is because, like, the cornmeal, that that was what they chose to, like, wrap the hot dog in. Because corn, cornbread does seems like more like of a southern thing or, like, more of something that would yeah. be from somewhere else besides here. I mean, I'm glad somebody figured it out. They're delicious. but Yeah, we don't really grow. I mean, we do grow corn here, but we're not like Iowa. You know, it's yeah. we have more than just cornfields going on over here. We're not known as a corn place. And cornbread um, isn't really something you, you know— think about when you think about Oregon as much so yeah yeah I agree so leaving potatoes and fried foods aside let's talk about some other things you mentioned berries so if I was thinking that Marion berries were invented here and I want to ask you a scientific question if, if that's true is it invented here and if yes is it the love child of a raspberry and a blackberry um, no, it is. It was invented here by Oregon State University. Um, it's not quite as direct as just crossing a raspberry and a blackberry. Um, the germplasm <laughs> that are, was the origin of Marionberry um, does come from a native blackberry. Um, if I remember correctly, it's trailing blackberry, which is a pretty common little... If you ever hike around and you get kind of trip-wired by a blackberry vine on the ground, that's trailing blackberry. Um, so that acted as the germplasm. 
Um, I think not just because of the vigorous growth, but because of the, the flavor of the berry was good. And then there were a couple of other berries, the Olali berry, which um, was, I believe, developed in California, was crossed with a different berry here. And so there were like all of these different crossbreeding operations happening. And it's kind of intense. And it's funny because we call Marionberry, it's not really, we don't have a state berry. It's the state pie is Marionberry pie, but we are known for Marionberries. And the, um, I guess there's all this drama about which berry should be the official pie of Oregon. <laughs> and the guy who developed the Kotata berry really, um, I think his name is Larry Dyke, he wanted to make the, the Kotata berry, like the official berry. And so there's, it's really funny. There's lots of controversy and drama. Um, it's very entertaining and interesting to read oh, <laughs> if wow. you're into it. Um, but, yeah, we have a lot. We have, you know, probably a dozen different native rubus or like you know blackberry species here um and a lot of them have been really helpful to berry breeders in developing new and improved varieties for commercial production so that katata berry you just mentioned i'm, I'm not sure if i caught the mm-hmm. name right what is that similar mm-hmm. to a marionberry blackberry it's kind of a dark berry it's same yeah same they're all cane berries uh-huh. in the same genus of rubus Oh, wow. I had never even heard about that. That's so interesting. And we, I do see those little blackberries in addition to the Himalayan ones that are the more wild mm-hmm. ones. But, um, and I, I never think about them fruiting very much, but I guess when they do, they, it tastes really good. <laughs> the Himalaya blackberry, which, you know, is hated by weed managers, was actually um, developed by one of my huge history crushes, Luther Burbank, who's this oh. plant breeder in California. He also um, developed the the russet potato. He did that as a um, response to the Irish potato famine. He wanted to um, help people. And then, yeah, when he was developing the Himalayan blackberry, he just wanted, so it's also called the Burbank blackberry. Um, he wanted to make a really productive one. And when he realized how thorny and awful these are, he um, started developing a thornless variety. And so <laughs> a lot of the thornless berries that you see today or maybe grow in your own yard were um, originally conceived by Luther Burbank. Oh, very cool. You mentioned Oregon has a state pie and it's contested by the berry mafia, but do we have a state food? Oh, um, we have several state foods. We have, um, let's see, our state mushroom is the chanterelle. Our ah. state beverage is milk. Um, milk? State nut is the hazelnut. That's... I know, who would have thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I should know more. Yeah, those are, we don't have like a specific, a lot of specific uh foods for our state. Oh, um, this is actually relevant news. Um, the Oregon Senate is in the process of establishing the potato as the official Oregon state vegetable. Um, and I can't believe I forgot to mention that at the wow. start of this podcast. Um, yeah, that's the big news. And so we might soon, oh, and then the pear is our state fruit. Yeah. And that's tied to our region down here in Southern Oregon. Yeah, yeah. Before it was like a major cannabis area, Medford was the the pear growing place. That's right. (laughs) So Harry and David are down there, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yep, yep. Well, I hope that it becomes our state vegetable, and maybe we can all start a writing campaign or letter campaign to help promote that or something. I don't know. I think that's a pretty easy sell. I mean, potatoes are, like, universally beloved. (laughs) Hey, we are the location for the setting of love potato. What more do you need? That's right. (laughs) I wonder if that's available, like, dubbed in English or with subtitles or something. 
<laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's probably some streaming service somewhere where you can catch old episodes. But um, yeah, it's just such a ridiculous and <laughs> wonderful thing. Yeah. So I also wanted to ask about the Bing cherry because I've done a lot of work oh. with Chinese diaspora history in the state. And I always yeah. hear that it was a Chinese orchardist that was in part responsible for one of those. My favorite fruit. Do you know much about that? Yeah, I do, actually. So um, the Llewellings came um, out to, well, well, what's now like just the border of Milwaukee and Portland on the Oregon Trail. They were these uh, abolitionists. They were Quakers, and they, yeah, they came out here. Henderson Llewelling set up the first orchard in Oregon, like a, a commercial orchard but with the purpose of growing fruit trees. Um, but then he had this more wanderlust, and he wanted to go to California. And, and, and he's got a fascinating history. You just Google Henderson Llewelling and Portland Monthly, and you'll read all about the Tiger Island sex cult he started in Honduras. It's Whoa. incredible. But then, so he and his brother had something about falling out. And his brother, Seth Llewellyn, um, who changed the spelling of his name, uh, took over the nursery. And um, he had a Manchurian foreman at the nursery named Ah Bing. And um, Ah Bing was the one who sort of found that random cherry growing. And um, yeah, it was really successful. They've been doing some other cherry breeding as well. They, they bred the Black Republican cherry. Um, but yeah, the Bing was the universe, like just really took off. It was a great seller. It was the, the cherry that ended up going on to become the maraschino cherry that was created at Oregon State University. Oh, wait, and, wait, wait, um, wait, pause. The or- maraschino cherries invented in Oregon, too? Yeah. Ah! <laughs> Is anything not invented here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, so unfortunately, when um, this was during a lot of uh, the Chinese exclusion laws, um, when Ah Bing traveled back home to visit family, uh, he was not allowed back into the country. And so he, um, the only legacy he has here is that the country's favorite cherry is named after him. But yeah, it was a real, you know, difficult time for Chinese Americans back then. Absolutely. And I think that the one thing that's important to tell that story is just so that, you know, modern Chinese Oregonians can better see reflected the history of the Chinese diaspora in in early Oregon history and all these crazy inventions that are coming out of our state. So I think that's a a great shout out to Ah being there. Um, So I also wanted to kind of follow up on the idea that the tater tot comes out of waste. And, you know, nowadays people try to recycle and think about, you know, cutting down on our carbon footprints and all that stuff. And I know there's other industries that create waste. Like I think yogurt, especially like Greek yogurt makes a lot of way that people have to figure out what to do with. Um, And, you know, I I guess baby carrots. I mean, aren't they like shaved down? Those aren't actually. They're not babies. (laughs) So, you know, in the last minute or so that we have, do you have an invention that can be the next invention to come out of all this compost turned favorite American food that you want to share here first? Wow. Um, I can't claim invention on any of these, but um, Carrot Top Pesto is great. Um, There's a a wonderful company here in Oregon called Wayward Spirits, and um, she, I forgot her name, but she distills um, liquor from whey that's, you know, just cast off. Um, That's really cool. I think that... um, Oh, you know, in making tofu, Oregon also has the Oregon, the oldest tofu company in America. And one of their waste products is this pressed out soy pulp called okara. And you can use that to make like burger patties or meat. You can use it to stretch meat too. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, 
um, I'm keenly interested in finding ways to reduce waste, and so especially with food. And um, yeah, I can I could go on. I could talk for an hour just on ways to avoid <laughs> ways yeah. to use up leftovers. Yeah, well, it sounds like we need to steer people towards your newsletter, Super Abundant, so that there's probably yeah. some of the stuff you touch upon there. And I also wanted to give a shout out as we wrap up this uh, this round of underground history. Um, you have published books, and people can find you online and all sorts of different things to hear more about you. Is there? Do you have a website or somewhere we should sh- send people? Yeah, I think the easiest place to keep up with what I'm doing is on Instagram. Um, my Instagram handle is just at Heather Arndt Anderson. And uh, my books um, are, I just have four of them. One of them is about is Portland's uh, food biography, and that's more about local history of food. Um, they're available at the library. You can get them online. You can buy them at Powell's. Um, but yeah, and then subscribe to the newsletter. It's uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting's website. Um, the newsletter is super abundant, and it's published to come to right to your email every Friday. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Heather, for joining us. This has been a really awesome conversation. I've learned so much. <laughs> Thanks, Chelsea. And you can uh, find Underground History online at jeffexchange.org or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts.